Welcome to Under My Roof, an Orthodox Christian podcast in which we explore questions of importance to life in the modern world. I am your host, Father Jacob Seaman, Rector of St. Theodore and St. Tyler's Orthodox Church in Cardiff, Wales, and Chaplain to Orthodox Christians at Cardiff University. My jurisdiction is the Archdiocese of Russian Orthodox Churches in Western Europe, based in Paris, and I serve under Metropolitan Jean of Dubnac. It is a joy to discuss matters of faith and theology, and I hope that you will join me in these discussions both now and for future episodes. But for now, let's drop in on today's episode of Under My Roof. Well, welcome back to Under My Roof, and uh, we have with us once again the uh, Orthodox Christian and philosopher, Dr. Joshua Mathen-Brown. This time, though, rather than talking about uh, the book, which we uh, co-edited, uh, we are looking more particularly at questions around the existence of God. And um, this is uh, particularly appropriate considering Joshua's own specialism, which we will hear about over the course of the next number of minutes. But uh, Joshua, I want to say welcome. I'm delighted to have you back with me. And uh, it's it's uh, good to be able to discuss these things. It's a real pleasure to be to be back on your show. I uh, appreciate you inviting me. Well, um, I'll, we'll just dive into the deep end, I think. Um, and that's because many of the listeners that are with us now, whether on uh, video or on Spotify mm -hmm. and other platforms, will be aware that in the earlier years of the 21st century, um, belief in God was under attack from quite a number of quarters, not least of which was a group of radical atheists, probably best known, uh, of whom was Richard Dawkins. Uh, in response, of course, Christians from different traditions pushed back with a number of philosophical arguments, uh, many of which I personally never found convincing. Now, William Lane Craig was a significant name in this respect, but I'm wondering if you could get us started today by giving us a picture of this moment um, and helping us get our head our heads around some of the debate on on both sides. Yeah, so actually the, this conversation starts a little bit earlier um, than that rise of the new atheist movement that you're talking about, um, epitomized by Richard Dawkins. Um, really in, in academia, especially in philosophy, there was a move movement um, in the early 20th century called logical positivism. And this is the, the kind of the, where this tradition known as analytic philosophy started to rise and kind of come to power in all of the different universities and institutions. Um, and in the early days in analytic philosophy, um, traditional uh, topics in philosophy like metaphysics and especially philosophy of religion, those kind of topics, and even ethics were kind of eschewed and, and, and deemed um, unworthy of serious consideration um, because they were not um, considered meaningful uh, topics that you could really discuss seriously. And they were kind of pushed out. Um, and, and at this time, you kind of saw a fracture in philosophy where you had the so-called continental tradition. <clears throat> uh, uh, and you still had within that tradition some then focus and discussion on these traditional topics. Um, and then you had an analytic philosophy seemingly veering away from that. Can I just um, ask then, before we move on, you mentioned continental as sort of a, a counterfoil, perhaps, to the analytic tradition. 
Would you say that the analytic philosophical tradition was a particularly Anglo-American phenomenon? Well, absolutely. Well, these kind of distinctions between continental analytic, um, they're difficult to really pin down. Um, so it sounds like when you say continental philosophy, referring to the continent of, of Europe, uh, you know, the, the Western European countries in particular, um, it sounds like, uh, you know, you have this geographical divide where you have all the philosophers in Europe as continental philosophers, and then all the ones over in the UK and Amer North America going one way. It's it's not really that simple. Uh, you have really philosophers imbibing the kind of this, these traditions all over the place. Mm -hmm. um, and so sometimes these labels aren't very helpful. Um, but yeah, it's true that there are some significant figures um, you know, uh, Kierkegaard, Nietzsche, um, and, uh, you know, figures like that, Camus later on that kind of are identified sometimes with, oh, this is the continental tradition. Um, and then, um, you have some really significant figures in the UK, um, that are kind of like, uh, identified with analytic philosophy. So, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of debate even over, <laughs> how useful that distinction is. There's a lot of blurring of the lines, um, but it's, it is useful as a kind of a general uh, distinction to kind of help you understand, kind of paint a picture of, in broad strokes of some movements in philosophy. Um, and, you know, fast forward what's happened. If you look at today, that distinction is probably even less meaningful because with an analytic philosophy, you've seen a complete return to all these traditional subjects are back on the table and um, being seriously discussed in analytic uh, philosophy departments. Uh, and, uh, and that includes uh, traditional topics in metaphysics. You see this playing out. There's a whole field now called philosophy of science. And within that field, you have people talking about things like essence and you know properties and all these kind of and substances, these traditional metaphysical kind of um, terms and distinctions. Um, and then, of course, you see the return of the philosophy of religion. And, and also, you know, moral philosophy is, uh, is there's a, a lot of philosophers focusing on that um, in the past 30 years. In that respect, is it because analytic philosophy, without those um, pursuits, had exhausted itself? I mean, what was... How would you account for the return of these, what I would consider important and, and fairly fundamental philosophical topics to the analytical school? It's, I'm going to make a statement about that that's a little too simplistic, but part of it is, is that logical positivism um, was, you know, a lot of philosophers recognized that it was a self-defeating program. Um and so, I mean, what the logical positivists were trying to do is to say that um, they were looking at language, looking at statements we make, propositions. And um, if, if you can't come to know that a proposition is true based off of some scientific or empirical means, or if it's just not true by definition, um, then it's a meaningless statement. And so um, kind of these anything then that has to do with statements about value um, these moral ethical judgments we make or statements about God or religious concepts, 
Well, those then become part of the pile, the trash can pile, right? They're, <laughs> they're meaningless statements. Um, they're not even worth considering. Um, but, um, you know, that assertion itself then becomes a part of the meaningless pile because you can't affirm logical positivism, right? The idea that only statements that can be verified scientifically or by the definition um, are meaningful. Well, that assertion itself is not something that you can verify by means of empirical science. And it's not true by definition. So um, right there at kind of a fundamental level, logical positivism, this program is self-defeating. And, and that's not the only thing, um, but that's one part of it. A lot of philosophers recognize that. And that kind of allowed them to say, you know, actually, ethics is important. We should talk about it. And let's bring that back in. Um, now, again, that's a bit of a simplistic explanation, but there, there's more to it. But that's part of it. Um, another part of it is, and this is going to lead us back to that kind of original question you had. Um, you saw, especially uh, in the mid-20th century, um, and uh, the rise of some interesting um, uh, Christian thinkers uh, entering into analytic philosophy departments and beginning to um, write and who kind of mastered um, analytic philosophy and then started writing on traditional topics. Um, one of those is he's still living. Alvin Plantinga is one um, that's here in uh, the United States. And he was primarily based at uh, Notre Dame. Um, and, you know, he was uh one of those kind of unique individuals who could, he could speak the language of the analytic philosophers and he would start writing um, on all the traditional topics like the problem of evil, the existence of God, those kind of things. Um, then over in the UK, uh, Richard Swinburne uh, at Oxford um, is another significant figure. And he did a, you know, um, he's a, his positions are quite different from Plantinga's in a lot of ways, but um, like Plantinga, he understood um, science very well. He understood analytic philosophy, and then he was able to then bring natural theology and those kind of dis discussions back onto the table. So that's going on even before the popular level stuff. Um, you see kind of a rise of um, Christian philosophy um, kind of making a comeback, and not just Christian philosophy, but really, um, again, these kind of, in general, these traditional topics become permissible again and to talk about in, in, in the academy. <clears throat> um, but then, um, yeah, you do see at a popular level then these um, uh, new atheist thinkers who are writing these best-selling books like The God Delusion and, and Breaking the Spell um, by Daniel Dennett. He's another one. Um, and these get uh, a lot of attention. And the figures in this group are pretty... They're bombastic. They're charismatic. They, you know, they they're really engaging speakers. They're kind of fun to watch. Um, they say pithy, witty comments, um, and they're good at communicating. And so they get a lot of attention. Um, and then, of course, you see uh, as as that is is kind of uh, gaining a lot of public attention. Some of what's happening then had already been happening in philosophy starts getting popularized. And you're exactly right. William Lane Craig is a, a good example of a, um, he's an evangelical Christian philosopher um, who's kind of working within that tradition that you saw with Plantinga and Swinburne. 
Um, and he, uh, he is an academic, but then he's also a popular level, um, philosopher. So he, he does a lot of the public debates against atheists, um, and things like that. Uh, and, um, writes some, does some popular level writing to get people interested in, in philosophy of religion. And so, um, I think, you know, uh, that return of the popular level engagement with philosophy of religion is partly a response um, to the kind of new atheist material. Um, suddenly you have interest now uh, on both sides in that kind of discussion. Um, thanks for that. You've raised so many sort of questions in my mind. One thing I would wonder is, uh, I mean, in the first instance, was Bertrand Russell sort of one of the figures uh, you were thinking about when you were talking about the earlier part of the 20th century? I mean, a uh, mathematician, but uh, somebody I think of as an analytical philosopher. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Bertrand Russell, I think, is could be considered one of the kind of uh, grandfathers or founders um, of the analytic tradition. Um, because now he wasn't, I don't think I would categorize him as, as a logical positivist because he actually wrote and thought a lot about many traditional topics in philosophy. Um, but having said that, he was um, very critical of um, especially ancient philosophy and Thomism and things like that. He was very critical of religion. Um, he was an atheist. He was, I guess you could maybe think of him as like a, a Richard Dawkins type figure um, in his time, because he also did some popular public engagement um, You know, on the radio. He has a famous debate over the existence of God that um, that on the BBC and he wrote um, he, he did some public lectures that were collected into a volume called Why I'm Not a Christian which is a more popular level book so it's, it's a very similar book to The God Delusion in some respects um, it's better than The God Delusion because he was an actual philosopher and so <laughs> when he's dealing with the topics uh, at, a, at a you know a, a better level than Richard Dawkins who's trained as a biologist, an evolutionary biologist. So um, I'd say if you're interested in a good popular level atheist book, I would definitely look at why I'm not a Christian before I would look at um, the God delusion. Um, if you want something with a bit more substance, but it's, it's popular level. So it's, you know, even some of the things he deals with, he kind of does it really quickly. Um, he summarizes some of these complex debates in a, and sometimes in a very simplistic way. So um, you have to keep that in mind when you read it. But yeah, so he he would be the founder because his book, his work in logic, mathematical logic, was really important for the development of analytic philosophy. Um, there was a push to kind of make um, philosophy more like a hard science, um, at least make it look like that. And so part of that was um, we need to be able to rigorously analyze language. We need a tool and mathematical logic is that tool we can use um, <clears throat> to focus on all of our efforts on um, getting rid of ambiguity, um, clarifying concepts, um, and trying to, you know, use mathematical logic um, in a way analogous to how, you know, scientists use mathematics um, when they're building models of the world and, and, you know, things like that. So, it's 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 
part of that move towards analytic philosophy to, um, you know, he's, I guess he's a part of that, but he, I, he himself, I wouldn't classify as a logical positivist just because he did have interests and, and wrote about many, many topics. Right. So it seems to me uh, not unreasonable then uh, that I should have asked just insofar as, as um, Bertrand Russell, the idea of him as a uh, logical positivist seems incongruous with the idea that he was also a mathematician. Yes. Um, well, he certainly highly, he highly influences the, the development of um, philosophy and Anglophone philosophy. And he is, you could think of him as like a grandfather figure for um, analytic philosophy. I don't think he himself could be identified as a pure kind of logical positivist just because he does a lot of traditional philosophy and talks about a lot of um, traditional topics in philosophy. Um, however, you're exactly right. His work, his most important work, I guess, um, was in development of this kind of mathematical logic. Um, and that becomes very important for analytic philosophy because they're trying to really hard to make philosophy look like a natural science. Um, and again, they're, so they're trying to shift away from topics where it's not very clear that the natural science scientific methods can be helpful. So those metaphysical topics, topics in ethics, um, you know, uh, religious topics, you want to move away from those. And then there's this huge emphasis on mathematical logic. And so um, using that as a, as a tool to clear away ambig uh, ambiguities and um, they want to kind of make it look similar to what's happening in, you know, sciences like physics and chemistry, where there's a, a lot of use of mathematics and, and modeling and the, the kind of the show, hey, look, philosophy is a serious discipline, just like the sciences. You know, we have this really sophisticated um, apparatus, we call it uh, mathematical logic or symbolic logic. Um, and so, um, because of that, yes, he definitely has, I think, a major impact on the direction that philosophy takes. So where do you and your philosophical interests come into all of this? Well, I'm fortunate to kind of come into it after there's already been this kind of renaissance in the Anglophone uh, philosophical world where all these traditional topics are coming back in and being entertained um, by many philosophers working in analytic philosophy. And so I have that benefit. So um, I, when we talked in our last um, uh, interview, I kind of gave you a little bit of a biographical sketch of how I came into philosophy. And I, 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 I told you about that debate I heard on the radio on NPR. Well, actually it, that was with uh, William Lane Craig and another philosopher, uh, Walter Sinnott Armstrong, who. Um, who they co-wrote that book and we're kind of doing the, the uh, interview circuit and, you know, promoting the book. Um, and that was for me uh, a gateway because I had never, you know, I, again, like I told you, I'd never uh, heard of really much about philosophy. I didn't know that you could talk about uh, religious ideas, especially using those kind of intellectual uh, tools that they were using in their debate. Now I've since, you know, I, I'm quite, um, I'm not uh, in agreement with William Lane Craig in a lot of issues. I've kind of moved away from maybe a lot of positions he he holds. Um, but nevertheless, I benefited from the fact that he was doing that kind of work um, that that showed me kind of 
opened me up to this whole world of uh, of analytic philosophy of religion. Um, and and if this is before I became Orthodox as well, so I didn't have the benefit of reading, you know, um, church fathers and uh, ancient Christian thinkers who often engage with philosophy, uh, philosophy of their time. Um, and so I didn't have that advantage either. I've since been able to study that and um, and bring incorporate that into my own thinking. Um, but um, so for me, uh, I, you know, I'm I'm lucky to have come into academics with there already being live kind of discussions on the table in um, you know prestigious academic journal uh, journals publishing papers on these things and books and monographs and things um, uh, on these traditional topics in philosophy of religion and uh, philosophical theology. So I kind of, like I told you before, I really just, I, I was drawn and attracted to those discussions and really interested in those kind of questions. And so that um, I started there um, in my journey. You talked about sort of, um, uh sort of moving away from uh, things that you would have perhaps originally considered uh, helpful on the part of uh, William Lane Craig's position. Could you just give us an example of uh, one or two points on which you might diverge uh, with somebody like him today? Yeah, I think some of it would be um, his general approach to doing um, public philosophy um, uh, I, you know, um, he, he likes to be very confrontational. Um, he's very famous for doing these public debates. Um, and, you know, um, he's a very talented, um, debater, a talented communicator. And a lot of the philosophers that he debates with, um, they may be brilliant minds. They may be great philosophers, but not so good at communicating, not good at, public debating, which is a whole different thing from just doing philosophy. And he's quite good at, you know, making a lot of these people look like um, idiots. <laughs> and then, of course, that just kind of uh, makes him popular and, and and has people cheer, you know, cheer him on. And, and, and it, it, I don't know, I, that whole manner of doing uh, public philosophy and that confrontational kind of uh, debate format I'm just not attracted to at all um, and then it's kind of um, created this whole new field they call it Christian apologetics um, and this is much more within the sphere of evangelical um, seminaries and Bible colleges you now have programs they call them you know a, you can do like a, a minor or a major in a po Christian apologetics um, and what you end up doing is getting taught some arguments. You're getting taught clever ways that you can try to make uh, someone who's an atheist maybe look foolish um, and mentally, you know, joust with them. Uh, what is often not taken seriously is actually doing philosophy um, and really getting serious about understanding the ideas that you're dealing with and um sometimes a lack of intellectual humility and a lack of genuine wonder and curiosity. So some of these philosophical questions don't have nice, neat answers. Um, there might, there's several answers that are compelling. Um, and when you're doing that kind of Christian apologetics stuff, um, 
it's more about training someone to be really a jerk, like, <laughs> like to, uh, you know, just be really good at debating um, and memorizing arguments um, rather than cultivating a deep um, and humble thinker, which I think is a much more important thing to do, especially as a Christian, um, if you're interested in academics. So I say that's one area where I just, it has its place. I don't want, don't get me wrong. I guess there are some people who have had maybe attended or seen, uh, you know, like a William Lane Craig style debate and that, um, you know, what was helpful for them. Um, um, but I'd say on a whole, it's not very helpful because um, most people, if you're an atheist, for example, attending that, you're not going to be persuaded. Um, you're unlikely it's because it's, it's more like a sporting event and you're going to cheer for your team. Um, you're not there to listen carefully to any kind of arguments and, and take them seriously. Um, and I don't blame any atheist philosopher who's kind of turned off by the kind of triumphant way in which he presents these arguments as if there's, you know, they're, um, you know, uh, indisputable and, <laughs> and that, you know, his philosophical positions are the only position you could take that kind of, you know, confidence. Um, I understand why a lot of academics are turned off by that. So, um, a lot of academic philosophers aren't impressed by that either because they don't, they, they actually notice that lack of intellectual humility. Um, Again, I, I want to be careful in what I'm saying because I really don't want I don't know William Lane Craig personally, so I don't wanna, I don't want to say anything about his character. Um, I'm not saying that he's some kind of prideful person, um, but it does come off that way to a lot of people. Um, I'm I went to University of Birmingham. That's where William Lane Craig got his PhD in philosophy. So I, um, he's a well named well known name there, and I know how a lot of the professors there think of him. Um, <laughs> Um, and so I'm just kind of trying to communicate that. And, I should say for listeners, you mean the University of Birmingham here in the United Kingdom, not uh, Birmingham, Alabama. Yes, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's let's move on then and just say, I mean, now that you are an Orthodox Christian, do you think that the work you began when you were perhaps closer to the Thomistic front line is still relevant? And what I mean by that, of course, is we, you know, any, any sort of... Um, First year undergraduate in philosophy will be introduced to the five ways of Thomas Aquinas. And, and of course, there's a certain kind of framework and approach to the questions around the existence of God that emerge from that who are very much uh, still um, working through the kinds of arguments that, um, that uh, are most closely associated with uh, that Thomistic philosophical tradition. I mean, you would have, well, you've said yourself, uh, at least um, in terms of your initial um, exposure to the discipline, that you sort of began in that uh, realm. Now that you've sort of moved on, because as an Orthodox Christian, you've obviously gone through an intellectual movement as well as a spiritual movement. Do you think that much of the work you uh, became involved with then is still, is still relevant? Yeah, I think the, the five ways uh, that are often taught, you know, that, that from Thomas Aquinas can be, they're, they're certainly worth learning about and discussing. I mean, they're an important piece of intellectual history. Um, so it doesn't matter if you're Orthodox or not. You should, if you're interested in learning about the history of philosophy, especially natural um, theology, 
um, then you would need to study that and understand it. Um, and there's a lot of value to doing that. Um, I think, uh, unfortunately, what, what tends to happen is a lot of Orthodox Christians um, view natural theology, that whole project, as exclusively a Western scholastic kind of um, phenomenon. They, they look at a figure like Aquinas and that whole tradition that builds off of him um, as being, um, you know, a Western thing that's nothing to do with orthodoxy, nothing to do with the Eastern churches. Um, it's a hyper-rational kind of way of approaching God. Um, and um, I think that's unfortunate because it's not really true. Um, you can find throughout uh, all of the Greek fathers um, some engagement with natural, what we call natural theology. Um, you can see, uh, you know, examples of uh, arguments from order for the existence of God, especially sprinkled throughout their writings, um, sometimes called cosmological arguments um, by some writers. Um, you can see um, interesting discussions about, uh, you know, arguments for the existence of a soul, and then um, further arguments in the fathers about how, um, you know, because the soul is, um, you know, in the image of God, you can actually come to know God exists by understanding that you have a soul um, and what the soul is. So, I mean, you do see um, uh, what we call natural theology. You can see that being done um, by these important figures, ancient figures um, in the East that are revered in the Eastern churches. Um, so it's it's not really fair to just say, no, that's just a Western project. Now, I will say um, you don't maybe see an emphasis on that as it did. I mean, there was a huge emphasis on that that developed in the West. Um, and scholastic kind of the scholastic movement, which um, takes that to a whole nother level. So, you know, yes, you didn't see anything like that happen um, in the Orthodox churches. Um, so that's true. But just to kind of write it off as purely a Western phenomenon, I think is not fair or accurate. Um, so I think um, what happens, though, is that, you know, and, and with Aquinas being the starting point, and then later thinkers um, like uh, Descartes as well, you know, Descartes, Leibniz, folk like that. And then fast forward to people like Swinburne and Plantinga. Those are the kind of names that are often studied and looked at um, in your average Anglophone philosophy department if you're going to do a course in philosophy of religion. And so, yeah, because of that, there's a, there's a real um, association that takes place between, oh, natural theology, philosophy of religion, that's a very Western project. Um, and um, it's partly just because there's a total lack of engagement with any other sources. So um, even going outside of orthodoxy, I mean, you can find discussions about God's existence very similar to the ones that you see in the West happening in ancient Hindu uh, philosophers who are debating over different conceptions of monotheism and the Buddhist philosophers who are making arguments for atheism, uh, you know, <laughs> a very, you know, in a similar manner that you might see happening today. Um, you can find um, these discussions happening um, in, uh, you know, also the Neoplatonic philosophy and, and the Stoic philosophers and, you know, all of that. So, I mean, um, 
it's just due to the fact that these are often not mentioned and studied in classes that you have this, I think, happen where people, especially sometimes Orthodox Christians, think, no, this has nothing to do with Orthodoxy. Um, and I, so I do think it's important. I don't think it's the most important thing. You know, um, uh, I think that it can be very helpful for someone who's an Orthodox Christian um, or who's interested in Orthodoxy, who's an inquirer, to be aware that there is a rich intellectual heritage there and that there is a project that we, we can call it natural theology um, and that that could be something that um, edifies someone and helps them um, in their intellectual journey. But it's certainly not the be and end all of what it is to be an Orthodox Christian. I'm going to have to now go back on myself and reveal to listeners that uh, I obviously know something about where you're coming from on that point, not least because we've worked together a little bit, but also because um, if I remember correctly, uh, your own um, doctoral work was on something called the Eutaxological argument, which is a development of the teleological argument for the existence of God. Now, um, as you undertook that work, you brought to bear on um, that very question, uh, Eastern sources that sort of gave it a, a much stronger Orthodox flavor, I think, than, than perhaps people would have expected. Can you say something about that? Yes, that's one of those wonderful, I guess, accidents that happen um, when, you know, you're doing some research in one area and then you realize it connects to some other part of your life and you kind of bring that into it. Um, I think my, I look back on it, my doctoral dissertation is very strange. <laughs> I tried to, you know, mash together um, everything I was thinking about at the time. And somehow it came out as a thesis that I was able to defend and, and, and everything. But um, I was, it was very ambitious and I tried to cover a lot of territory. Um, and yeah, so my journey did begin. I, I, I found this obscure uh, 19th century thinker um, who, interestingly enough, is actually from Ohio, where I currently live. Um, his name is Ellie Hicks, and uh, he was a uh, geologist trained at Harvard um, for reasons that I still am not clear on, decided to um, spend a year in the UK uh, studying natural theology and wrote a, a monograph on the subject called The Critique of Design Arguments. Um, and you're exactly right. When he was writing the teleological uh, design arguments for um, very popular, very much the focus of a lot of discussion, um, especially criticism um, from you know natural scientists and, and other people working on um, evolutionary biology. Um, and um, he was critical of the teleological argument as well. Um, uh, and so part of the book is him kind of criticizing um, teleological type arguments. But the other part is then talking about another approach to the argument from order, and he calls it, he names it the eutaxiological argument. Um, and it's a non-teleological kind of design argument. So it doesn't um, appeal to premises that talk about there being purpose or does like uh, evidence of purpose uh, in nature to make its case. And he thought such a design argument is actually more compelling um, because it focuses on order and he makes a distinction between order and telos um, and kind of these ends or purposes in nature. Um, and so um, then in the book is largely him going back through a lot of ancient philosophy all the way up to his time, pointing out that 
many of these teleological design arguments could actually be recast or reformulated as a eutaxological argument. Um, so that's this little book he wrote. It was uh, largely ignored and um, I kind of stumbled upon it uh, one night in a library and, <laughs> and I thought that's really interesting. And um, what ended up happening is I was also on my own spiritual journey to orthodoxy and was reading a lot of uh, folk like uh, St. Maximus the Confessor, St. John of Damascus, uh, Cappadocian Fathers, reading um, Pseudo-Dionysius and things like that. And really, um, that was not, I wasn't reading them for academic reasons. I was more reading them for um, my own spiritual development and growth and understanding um, orthodoxy better and understanding my faith better. Uh, but what I began to see is really interesting ideas in these wonderful thinkers that um, I thought needed to have a voice within Anglo Anglophone philosophy and the analytic tradition, which it kind of tended to ignore such uh, these figures and their ideas. And so um, in my thesis, I ended up, yeah, trying to bring together the work I was doing on the eutaxological argument and also um, the kind of apophatic uh, theism that you find in orthodoxy and these great thinkers. And I tried to match this up into one thesis and, um, you know, it's kind of an odd dissertation, but <laughs> there you go. <clears throat> would you, um, would you be able to, were I to uh, ask kindly, uh, perhaps give us a, a summary paragraph um, uh, describing what you concluded or or how those two, the apophatic sort of theological tradition and, and the eutaxological argument, you were able to synthesize those. Sure. I'll do my best. Um, if, if, if you're familiar with design arguments um, these days, you're most likely to have encountered it in the form of the, what's called the intelligent design movement. Um, so that they've done a lot of popular level writing on design arguments. Um, and so you, you can kind of see this tradition that uh, intelligent design movement traces itself kind of back to this figure named William Paley, who is well known for his um, kind of watchmaker argument. Um, and you draw this analogy between uh, an artifact like a watch, uh, a pocket watch, uh, which has obviously uh, been assembled, you know, parts have been put together um, by a mind to form some function or purpose. And there's an analogy drawn there. You find some uh, maybe organ, uh, a biological organism or an organ within that, like the, the, the human eye or something like that. And you point out that, oh, like, like a watch, it's been assembled for this purpose. Um, and, and you go on. Um, so you start off by pointing out some supposed instance within nature of um, uh, purpose. Um, in nature, and then from there, you argue that there's a mind behind that, um, or you can do that at the at the level of the whole universe. Um, so you have that still going on in the intelligent design movement today, um, maybe more sophisticated than William Paley. They're 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 looking at little uh, motors in bacteria, for example, the, the bacteria flagell flagellum, um, which is like a little tiny microscopic, um, what looks like appears to be like an, uh, a a motor that propels these. Um, cells around. Um, 
and they're making similar kind of style arguments. Um, and uh, you can also find uh, uh, within that movement uh, an argument for fine tuning of the universe. So again, um, this is teleological because it's looking at um, all the kind of fundamental laws of physics and trying to argue that they're fine-tuned just perfectly for the advent of intelligent life. So again, you're, you're pointing out that the universe or things in the universe are something, they, they appear to be like an artifact. They have a, they've been assembled for a purpose. They've been put together for some kind of end, um, whether that end is the advent of an intelligent creature like you and I, or being propelled, you know, <laughs> a little bacteria cells being propelled around. Whatever you're arguing, that's um, it. All is very similar uh, type of logic. So most people, I guess, if you've encountered a design argument, that's what you're used to. So um, I say that to start off with because it helps you understand the eutaxological argument uh, better. Um, the eutaxological argument doesn't begin with ends or purposes in nature. Um, it, it doesn't say there is no end or purpose to nature. It's just kind of remaining silent on that topic and saying, well, that's controversial. Um, let's just set that aside. Um, let's just focus on the fact that there are ordered things. Um, there are, there's clearly a collection of ordered entities in the world. Um, and this is at all levels of reality. Um, you can look at it um, in terms of the atoms or the particles. Um, that the atoms are composed of, or you can look at that at a macroscopic level and look at galaxies and super galaxies. You can look at individual organisms and, or things like, you know, rocks. In all this, you see a structure, um, an order, things relating to each other and conforming to some kind of pattern ordering principles. Um, and this is not that, I mean, everything you can say in philosophy is at some level ultimately controversial because there's going to be somebody who's like, I disagree with that. <laughs> but uh, saying that the universe is ordered in that kind of way is not very controversial um, unless you're like an extreme skeptic and you just can't trust anything, uh, you know, that our senses are telling us. Um, you're going to accept that there is some kind of structure or order to the world. Um, and I mean, it's hard to understand how we could, that natural science could be so, so successful if, if it weren't the case that the universe and the things that compose the universe were, uh, if they weren't ordered. Um, so uh, that's one way that the eutaxological argument, I think, is has a better starting point. It starts with less controversial um, premise uh, than the traditional teleological arguments, which are already from the, the get-go, they're controversial, right? You're saying there's end and purpose in nature. Um, and then trying to make an even more controversial claim. And uh, this means that there's a God, a mind behind it. Um, and the eutaxological argument doesn't. It just talks about the fact that there are ordered um, things, ordered entities. And um, from there, it goes on to, to, to argue that there, there's an uh, explanation. Um, there must be some kind of explanation for um, the fact that the universe is ordered. Um, now, that might be the most controversial claim in the argument, um, but it, I, I don't think it is. Um, so a lot of people find this principle that's, that's called the principle of sufficient reason um, compelling. Um, and that just says that I'm going to simplify this so I don't go on and on. I'm already going on too long. <laughs> 
um, the, the principle of sufficient reason is just saying, look, when you have uh, some fact in the world, um, there's going to be an explanation for it, um, whatever that fact may be. Um, there's now that's that's there's different versions of of the principle of sufficient reason, um, and I'm not going to go right now into all that nuance and that discussion. That'll take us too far afield. Um, some philosophers don't like the principle of sufficient reason. There's criticisms of it. Um, but I've you know done some work saying that well even if you reject the principle of sufficient reason, um, it's more reasonable to accept that when you see some uh, fact, when you experience some fact, um, it's more reasonable to believe that there is some explanation for it um, that and uh, rather than to believe that there you know there's just absolutely no explanation whatsoever. Um, and again, I'm not going to dive into that argument because that'll take us on a, a rabbit trail, but I've published on that for anyone who's interested. Um, and so um, if you're willing to accept that there must be some kind of explanation um, for the fact that there are ordered things in the world, um, well, then that's the first stage of the eutaxological argument. Um, you, you, you accept there's ordered things and there's some kind of explanation as to why there, there are ordered things. Um, and the second step would then just be doing some what's called conceptual analysis and asking some questions about, well, whatever this explanation is, um, can we say anything about it? What would it be like? Um, can we, you know, um, talk about it at all? And um, that's where things connect in with this kind of apophatic tradition um, that you find in the fathers and in the Orthodox tradition. So in my thesis, I argue that um, whatever this entity is, whatever this explanation is for the fact that there are ordered things, well, we, we couldn't in principle say anything about it, its nature, its essence. We couldn't define what it is, um, but we could uh, potentially say some things about its activities. Um, and so uh, we go. I go on from there. And it turns out that we um, can talk about some analogous properties that we Everyone knows to be analogous properties that uh, of God, that, you know. Um, so I'll stop there because I've already gone way too long. <laughs> it's, but it's really difficult to talk about these subjects without uh, providing some of that background material. So, Well, it's, uh, I mean, one thing I find, uh, certainly when I've been interviewed, even about my own work, it's, uh, you know, when, one can't help but feel a sense of enthusiasm when you get invited to actually talk about things that probably not many people are ever going to read. So... Uh... <laughs> Yes, I appreciate what you've got to say. Thank you. Next question. Um, in light of everything that we've just uh, discussed, then, can God be proven? Ah, oh, okay. So it depends on what what you think it takes for something to be proven. Um, if you are someone who thinks, um, well, the only thing... Um, that can be proven is something that can be proven by means of the scientific method, for example. Well, unfortunately, um, God can't be proven if that's if that's your requirement, because you cannot use the tools of science, the scientific method, to prove that God exists. Um, the question, does God exist, is just not the type of question um, that science is equipped to answer. Um, it's not designed to answer that. In fact, it's not designed to answer a lot of other similar philosophical questions, um, like what is a cause, um, or uh, you know, 
what does it mean for an action to be a right action or a good action? You know, those kind of questions are philosophical questions. The scientific method is not aimed at answering. So uh, if you are a uh, proponent of scientism, which would be someone who just says, look, if it's not provable by means of the scientific method, then it's not provable, full stop, then yeah, um, you can't prove God. Uh, if you accept that, hey, these questions that science is not equipped to answer, they're still important questions um, and that we can use the tools of philosophy to try to answer them. Um, if you're willing to, to accept that, uh, then you might be open to something like a eutaxological argument, to exploring that. Um, and you might find it convincing. Um, you might say, wow, those premises are, are pretty strong. I have a good reason to accept them. And therefore, I have a good reason to accept the conclusion. Um, and um, that might lead you to, to believe that, um, that God exists, or at least to believing that the proposition God exists is true. Um, and so if someone who thinks that philosophy is important and that um, these kind of questions are still worthwhile and that philosophy provides the tools to help answer them, and then further, someone who thinks that one of these kind of arguments are convincing, or that maybe like the eutaxological argument or something similar is a sound argument, and then we must uh, accept the conclusion, then they might think, wow, that, that's pretty strong reasons to accept um, the existence of God. Um, however, you know, most people, I, I, I don't think most people come to believe in God in that way. Um, so, um, even someone who's convinced by one of those arguments may not have a, it may not make much difference to their life in terms of it may not mean that they change any of their behavior or that they act differently towards other people or that they, uh, you know, suddenly begin to pray and, and worship or, you know, practice a religion. I've met philosophers who um, find some particular argument for God's existence really convincing, yet don't practice any religion it doesn't seem to really deeply impact their lives um, in a significant way. Um, so, um, yeah, I think that maybe answers your question. The, these philosophical arguments can always be, dis uh, you know, disputed. Um, there's so if your if your requirement for for proving something means that absolute certainty that you need some kind of uh, argument that no one could dispute, that none of the premises could be questioned. There is no such argument. Um, any philosophical argument can be questioned and disputed. Um, you either find one more or less convincing. Um, and so if you find a particular argument more convincing, then you, you have a good reason for believing the, the conclusion. Um, it seems to me that one of the problems we run into, certainly in uh, the world of social media, for example, where people will um, throw out comments about God, but they seem to me to be making a gross um, categorical error because they're talking about God as if God was a thing like, uh, you know, the, the, the famous uh, Douglas Adams uh, passage about, you know, the fairy underneath the, uh, the, the flower petal at the bottom of the garden or whatever it is he says. Yes. Um, could you say something about that? Just because I think should our listeners uh, be sort of going along with what you're saying and then uh, turn off and, and say, hold on, um, does conceding to anything Dr. Brown's just said actually entail, um, you know, belief in the tooth fairy? 
Um, no, I want to I want to sort of make clear what we're talking about, Ben, and and therefore avoid such a categorical error. What's the difference between a thing like that and God? Yeah, that's actually a really important question because that's often not um, thought about very carefully in these kind of public discussions, and certainly um, by people such as Douglas Adams or these contemporary new atheist thinkers. Um, they aren't very careful uh, when they when when it comes to um, the the God that they are criticizing. Um, and you're exactly right. Uh, I think the average person. Uh, when you say, um, what comes to mind when you, you hear the word God, um, they're going to conceive of something like maybe, um, you know, in Monty Python's search for the Holy Grail, when they show up to Camelot yeah. and this giant <laughs> head appears in the clouds and you have this like menacing uh, man with, you know, fiery eyes and a beard and, you know, a crown who's like booming voice. That's what they're thinking. Um they're thinking of something like Monty Python theism. Uh, and um, and then, of course, it's really easy to criticize something like that. Um, and, and, and actually, to be fair, uh, what's happened in, in, in contemporary Anglophone philosophy of religion is that the conception of God that they're often debating is actually closer to that um, than you might think. Um, it's a slightly more sophisticated version of that, but it's essentially... A God who is a um, a person in the exact same sense that you and I are persons. Um, the only difference between God and you and I is that God's an invisible person, and he has personal qualities that you and I have, like knowledge and power. Um, he has them to a maximal degree. Um, so again, even in academic uh, philosophy of religion, often the type of God that's being debated over and discussed is much closer to that kind of Monty Python theism than you might think. Um, and, um, and so, yeah, in the popular imagination and even in a lot of academic philosophy, this conception of God um, as a God that's completely knowable, definable, we can say what God's essence is, and um, we can talk about God, and uh, we can then debate about whether that type of God exists or not. Um, that is um, at the forefront of a lot of discussions. And of course, those kind of Douglas Adams type criticisms, talking about sky fairies or or the Richard Dawkins talk about the flying spaghetti monster, those kind of things, you know, saying, well, I don't believe in the flying spaghetti monster and I don't believe in God, you know, um, as if um, those two things are remotely similar to each other. Um, and, uh, and so um, it is important to point out that actually um, especially in orthodoxy, the conception of God that orthodox Christians have had traditionally um, is really rooted in a kind of an ancient stream of conceiving of God. Um, you can find this ancient monotheism in, in Africa, um, this idea that there's an unknown um, creator or some kind of ground of existence, some, something that explains why there's anything. Um, but this, whatever this is, this, this is not something that's like, like the other things that we experience. It's beyond that. Um, and it's inaccessible to the human mind. Um, it can't be captured perfectly using, uh, human language and human concepts. You find that kind of idea, 
um, like I already re referred to in uh, ancient uh, Hinduism. Um, you can find concepts of, of God very similar to that. Um, even uh, in looking at ancient China and looking at Taoism, um, the concept of Tao is very much the explanation for the forms of things, the explanation as to why there are discrete things that we experience as different things. But whatever this Tao is, it's something beyond um, our knowledge, beyond human conce conception, um, beyond being and non-being. Terms like that are used in Taoism. So there's this common human experience across cultures, times, and places of something beyond something that's um, uh, inaccessible um, in a sense, unknowable, that yet explains why there's anything at all, explains why there are distinct things. Um, and um, this is what we mean when we say God. And interestingly, God is a, um, it's not a term, traditionally that term God that we're translating is not um, referring it's not like a uh, personal name. It's not like Jacob and Joshua and God, you know, <laughs> um, it's referring to activities. It's referring to activities like creator, sustainer, um, the explanation, the ground of, of being. Um, and even those terms, uh, when we use them, we use them only in an analogous sense that we do. Um, when we talk about um, the things that we experience, you know, trees and rocks and people and galaxies and planets and, and atoms and all these things that we experience and study and look at, these finite things um, that have a structure and a form that we can talk about uh, maybe defining them and using our concepts to, to clarify what we mean by them. Um, when we talk about this uh, entity that explains uh, the reason why there's a universe um, when we talk about its activities, we're using only um, the human language the best we can to describe such an entity. But ultimately, they, these things collapse. They're not perfect. Um, and so uh, that's what traditionally Orthodox Christianity is affirming. Um, when it talks about the divine essence or nature, it, it, you can't define this. You can't define God. You can't say what God is. You can't reduce God to a nice little bundle of properties and say, that's what God is. Um, you can talk about God. You can know God um, and talk about, you know, using these analogical kind of predicates, um, but recognizing that they don't perfectly capture the subject. Um, and um, I think that's why in Orthodox Christianity, there's much more of an emphasis then on the mystical experience of God. So we can participate in God's activities. Um, we can have a direct kind of firsthand awareness um, and knowledge of God that's different from that kind of propositional knowledge that, oh, God exists kind of statements. I believe that's true. That's propositional knowledge. But we can actually have a direct encounter and awareness of the divine. And you see that as a major emphasis in the amongst the monastic traditions in the Orthodox Church. Um, important figures like Saint Gregory Palamas being, uh, you know, a primary example. Um, 
that, that uh, you've essentially preempted my next question, which I'm I'm delighted with actually. So um, you can perhaps save us some time. I was simply going to ask how you saw um, your initial comments about whether or not the existence of God could be proven. Um, how you saw that aligning with the Eastern Christian intellectual tradition, but essentially you've just told us that, which I, I, I very much appreciate. Um, yeah, and I just to build on that a bit, I would say even for me personally, um, I find the that second type of knowledge I referred to, and you can call that a knowledge by acquaintance, firsthand direct awareness of God. Um, or you're aware of God, that's something that's more valuable. Um, that's worth pursuing. And we do that through, in the Orthodox Church, we do that through asceticism, um, you know, trying to overcome our passions um, because our, our own sin actually clouds our judgment. It clouds our ability to be aware of God's presence. Um, and we do that through the liturgy, through this participating in the sacraments, Um and it's through those activities that you can actually become aware and have that kind of firsthand direct awareness, knowledge by acquaintance. That's what we should be aiming for and seeking, um, becoming one with God, what we call theosis, that central idea, the concept in, in orthodoxy. That's more important. And to me, that's what draws me to God um, more so than me thinking about a eutaxological argument. Um, as much as I think that's interesting and it's, it's important. Um, it's, it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing to have um, a rational kind of argument to look at and discuss when it comes to explaining um, the, the fact that we have a universe, the fact that we have ordered things um, that's philosophically valuable to have that discussion and can be um, helpful for someone who may be struggling with some kind of, intellectual doubts. Um, but I'd say first and foremost, pursuing union with God, knowledge by acquaintance through uh, the things that we often neglect in our lives, which is the asceticism and, and sacraments and, you know, <laughs> and prayer. That's far more important. I love what you've just said. And I would be inclined to tie everything up with that, uh, making it the last word. I would say to any future listener, if they want to, um, sort of uh, narrow down this entire conversation to about two or three minutes. These last two or three minutes would be what I would uh, highlight and say, uh, you know, keep in mind. But I want to give you the opportunity to give us some plugs for um, thinkers that you think are important. So in terms of uh, Orthodox Christians paying attention uh, to particular names today, uh, when it comes to good uh, philosophy, um, especially as it relates to some of the intellectual challenges we now face, who might those thinkers be? Who would you want to sort of give a shout out to? Ah, that's somewhat tough uh, because many of the, I'd say the majority of, you know, Christian thinkers involved in contemporary analytic philosophy are coming from a Western tradition. Um, they're maybe coming from um, Catholicism, or um, they're like, you know, they're really interested in Thomism and, um, or they're going to come from, uh, you know, a reformed tradition of some sort. And they might be really interested in the thinking of someone like Leibniz, for example, um, he's pretty popular. Um, and I think those are, don't get me wrong. Those are actually really important 
figures to study. And um, um, I wouldn't ignore that. Um, but uh, if you're looking for a distinctly orthodox uh, position on these contemporary discussions, it's harder to find. Um, now, in, I, I did mention Richard Swinburne at the beginning of this talk. He actually converted to orthodoxy. He was Anglican and he is orthodox. Um, unfortunately, I wouldn't necessarily recommend him as a great example of an orthodox thinker because his conversion to orthodoxy seems to have had zero impact on any of his thinking about <laughs> the philosophy of religion. Um, and in fact, notoriously, his conception of God is actually much closer to when he talks about God in his academic writing is that, um, you know, that kind of uh, God who's knowable, graspable. We can talk about God's properties and his essence. Um, and so um, his uh, his philosophical work is almost indistinguishable from, you know, people like William Lane Craig and, and Alvin Plantinga who are working within the Western uh, philosophical tradition. So maybe not so helpful if you're an Orthodox Christian. Um, <laughs> um, there... Um, so yeah, there's there's not a whole lot of contemporary thinkers to point to who are doing, um, you know, serious academic work in philosophy of religion. Uh, I'm kind of a, an anomaly um, that I've got my foot in that world, um, but you know, even I haven't done that much publishing. Um, I'm a junior scholar, so um, maybe give me a few more years. Maybe I can get some more out there. Oh. That is. Um... A wonderful prospect, I think, and and I guess we have taken our first stab at uh, getting, you know, some orthodox thinkers out there by means of uh, the book that we've uh, alluded to already in this conversation, spoke about at greater length in our last conversation. So I would direct any any listeners or viewers to to the previous conversation you and I had. But uh, Dr. Joshua Brown, this has been fantastic, and I really appreciate it. Thank you very very much. You're most welcome. You've been listening to Under My Roof, an Orthodox Christian podcast with me, Father Jacob Siemens. If you have enjoyed this episode and wish to support me and my parish, please be sure to tune in regularly. Also, please visit me at coffee.com slash priestjacob and consider buying me a coffee. That's coffee.com slash priestjacob, K-O-F-I.com forward slash priest Jacob, all one word. Thank you, and God bless you.